Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining yet again. So today, we are going to be analyzing the great, awesome, mighty, powerful God. You knew that he was really powerful, didn't you? Eh? Rabbeinu Bechaya is trying to make the case for trust. And today he does it in a very powerful way. Today's lecture has been generously dedicated by my dear friends, our show members, Ian and Sarah Maggot. Baruch Hashem, have a mazel tov. A new grandson will be entered into Brisei Shalavram Avinu with Hashem's help on Erev Shabbat tomorrow morning. And they are praying for Rufu Shlema, for Shalom ben Fradche. So good news should be heard and shared by all, and the merit of Torah study should aid and assist in bringing forth divine help and salvation. This is the third, the third attempt now to reimagine, to reframe what it is that fuels not faith, but trust in God. So, in case you haven't been listening, or maybe if this is the first time you're joining, let me just quickly recap by telling you that in the second chapter of the Shara B'tochen, the great Rabbeinu B'chaya identified seven criteria that would be necessary for a person to be able to place their trust in a provider. In this third chapter, Rabbeinu Bachaya is kind of reframing these criteria before they were presented as, you know, criteria for trust, not necessarily trust in God. First, we have to define trust altogether, and then we can define trust in God. First, we have to define or identify the qualities that would be necessary to inspire trust. And then we can demonstrate how these qualities and characteristics, in fact, this criteria, can only be found in the Creator. So interestingly, today we'll begin with Vahashlishi, the third of the criteria. And although previously the criteria mentioned was not in the order in which it was first presented, and I don't want to repeat the reasons for that, it's a lot to do with addressing us in an emotional way, kind of wetting and stimulating our emotional quotients so that we not only understand this academically, cerebrally, or in an aloof fashion, but rather it's something we adopt, make our own, something we feel strongly about. We should feel strongly about our trust in Hashem. It's something that once you develop, you become passionate about. 
as it calms and stills the other negative emotions like anxiety, frustration, worry, fear, and concern. So addressing us in a heartfelt way, the third thing we really need to contemplate is power. Power. I mean, if you go back to the previous chapter, Rabbeinu Bechaya suggested that if we are going to trust in somebody, rely blissfully upon somebody, not worry because, hey, my provider has got me covered. The provider would have to be chazak. The provider would have to be very strong. You'd have to be the kind of provider that's loyunutzak, that can't be overwhelmed or deterred. You'd have to have strength and stamina. You'd have to be the kind of provider in whose way no one could ever stand. And then Rabbeinu Bechaya went on in the second chapter to say, well, if you think about it, who other than God could actually be so powerful? Who other than God would actually be unstoppable. And he quotes a series of verses. So we know that this is a quality which is identified with God. I'm not going to try and convince you to believe in God today. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain amount of a, a threshold you need to cross if you're planning to build betachen. You need, obviously, to believe in God or to want to believe in God. And this is not the series to convince you of that. This is the learning, this is the exploration, this is the quest to be able not only to believe, not only to have faith that there is a God and that He is omnipotent and all-powerful and can do as He pleases, but that this God of ours loves, cares for us, watches, supervises us, and He wants us to trust in Him. And as we've articulated and developed and explained multiple times during the course of this series, and we'll talk about this continuously because it's foundational, the more we trust in God, the more we place our reliance upon Him fully, and the more we are certain that Hashem who can will, the more Hashem who can does. Our betochen, our trust our anxiety-free lives lived relying on Hashem, the most powerful medium to bring forth Hashem's overt and obvious blessing. So the third thing, strength, power. Says Rabbeinu Bechayi v'hashlishi ki ha-beidi yizbarech that the Creator blessed be He. Chazok mikol chazok. Oh, he is stronger than any other strong being. I'm sure this is really taking you by surprise. You didn't know that people who believe in God believe that God is omnipotent and all-powerful, eh? I mean, <laughs> it's good that Rabbeinu Bechaya is telling this to us because if Rabbeinu Bechaya wouldn't have taken the time to share this idea that God is chazak mikol chazak, you know, we might have thought elephants are stronger than God. Oh, mighty warriors. Or maybe oceans, volcanoes, thunderstorms, hurricanes, tornadoes, comets. I mean, God's strong, but, you know. <laughs> there are other strong things out there. So because there are other strong things out there, we say, 
few. It's good to have Rabbeinu Bechaya here in the schoolyard full of, for us when you know, all those bullies come to beat us up and he's our big brother and he's calming us and saying, shh, it's going to be okay. God is stronger. Seriously? For this, I need to study the Shara B'tachan to hear that God is Chazak, Mikol Chazak. There are lots of strong things and God is stronger. <laughs> I want to tell you something. In my studies of this remarkable book, there's one thing that I've noticed almost consistently. I start, I start to read, I start to study, and what I read or study makes no sense to me. Either because it's elementary, you know, Watson, it's so obvious, or it sounds, it sounds almost childish, juvenile. It, it, it's like, I don't see the profundity, I don't, I don't, I don't see the depth. And then I start to say to myself, no, 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 this is Rabbeinu Bahaya. this is G'dayle <laughs> HaRashayinim, one of the greatest sages of an era, an age, that we Torah Jews characterize as populated by proverbial angels. And look, there's, there's no way this is simplistic. I must be missing the point. And consistently, I clearly am. <laughs> And through repeated study and contemplation and thankfully many, many great minds, really titanic sages of centuries past who have spent tremendous effort in elucidating the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. And you've got to think by yourself too. And you've got to go back to his sources. And you look deeply into the scripture that he quotes and the commentaries on. All of a sudden, a few hours later, a beautiful picture begins to emerge. But I'm sharing with you the seeming simplicity, the frustration that I experience because I want you to go on this journey with me. I, wa I want you to see how Rabbeinu Bechaya on the surface seems so juvenile and simplistic, but it's actually so incredibly profound. You know, I was talking about this with, with one of my sons the other day. And he said something quite intuitive to me. He said, you know, Rabbeinu Bechaya's work was studied by the greatest sages, but it's also read by the simplest of people. And perhaps Rabbeinu Bechaya wrote his work in a deceptively simple manner so that ordinary, unlettered, really uneducated people could also read this and say, yes, yes that, that speaks to me. Because true profundity can speak to a range, a wide array of people. As the Rebbe Rashab once said about the book of Tanya, he said the Tanya is like the Chumash. Everybody studies it. Everybody understands it. But nobody really knows its depth. When my toddlers come home and sit at the Shabbat table, and they talk about the Parsha. I'm talking nursery school. Do they not understand the lesson? Is it not true that God told Abraham, hit the road, travel? I'll tell you where later. I mean, that is the straightforward meaning. 
Is it not true that Sarah was abducted by the Pharaoh? Is it not true that the cities of Sodom were destroyed? It says open scripture. Is that all the Chumash is telling us? A couple of simplistic stories? Of course not. And the amazing thing about Torah, beginning with the Chumash, is that you study it and study it and you see its depth and you see its profundity and you see its incredible intuition and wisdom. And a person can study Torah their whole life long and continue to mine the words, the sentences, the structure for diamonds that are packed in each and every single iota of its strata. Rabbeinu B'chayi's Shara B'tochen is much like this. So yeah, on the surface it seems like so simplistic. That's what frustrates me about a lot of the translations or elucidations. I mean, even the Kahat book that we're using frustrates me tremendously because of that. But I guess it's written on a very basic level. So he, I mean, we're on page 61. He just says, the third quality, the creator may be blessed is stronger than the other strong being. I'm glad that he told us that. <laughs> the Ned Abakredish, in his commentary on these words, he says something uh, extremely obvious. He says, you should know that this is who Inyan Shlishi Hamar. This was the third thing we spoke about. Yeah, the third thing we spoke about was that in order for us to be able to trust an entity, a provider, they'd have to be very strong and unstoppable. Okay. So now God is that very strong, unstoppable force entity. And um, you're saying, okay, right. (laughs) Is Is there anything else? In other words, in, in simple English, uh, the point of Rabbeinu Bahaya for very, very, you know, kind of pedestrian, everyday fashion is if you would ask a powerful person for help, so your reliance or trust in that person, even if they assured you that they would be there and take care of you, is never really absolute because, who knows, there may be somebody stronger. So you reached out to your prime minister, your president, most powerful man in the country. Yeah, but there's a Supreme Court. The prime minister, even the president, doesn't get to do whatever he or she wants. They just don't. You never know. Maybe, maybe there'll be somebody more powerful. You've got a guarantee. Oh, we're safe. We're safe. We've got a guarantee. You know, here's a modern day example of this. Ariel Sharon took then-President Bush on a helicopter tour, and he showed him how vulnerable Israel is. He showed him. like It was like, Israel needs the land buffer. Like If, if we go back to that, that narrow strip, God forbid, giving away more pieces of our eternal homeland, the Veret Yisrael, to the Arab neighbors who hate us, want to kill us, it literally brings us back to what Abba Ibn called Auschwitz borders. Quite literally. 
But he got a letter. He, got, he was very comfortable throwing 10,000 Jews out of their home because he got a letter from President Bush. And the letter was a guarantee that the United States would stand with Israel and, yeah, and... And he was so proud of himself. Prime Minister Sharon came back and he surveyed the letter. Look, I have a guarantee. Al-tiftichu benedivim, David HaMelech says. You put your trust in ministers and nobility, in presidents? Come on! Here today, gone tomorrow. And indeed he was gone tomorrow. And the next president was not nearly, it would seem, as favorably disposed. But people put their trust in the promises of governments and politicians or of kings and queens, of magistrates and judges. How foolish is that? Even if they're very powerful, they can be somebody more powerful tomorrow. And you come to someone and say, well, put your trust in Hashem. They're like, trust in Hashem. What are you, joking or something? Get real. Come on. We live in the real world. Indeed we do. So a person can promise, and he doesn't know, and you don't know, if there isn't somebody more powerful that will come along in a moment. But with God, he's most powerful of all. Okay, very nice. So Rabbeinu Bechaya articulated this obvious axiomatic truth to us. Anything more? So the first thing I notice is that he repeats himself, or so it seems. And one of the things that um, I've Baruch Hashem noticed is that great authors like Rabbeinu Bahai never repeat themselves. If you think they're repeating themselves, it's because you just don't understand what they're saying. Every word here was measured. Every detail was carefully thought about. And even though it wasn't written in Hebrew originally, the translator of this work was a highly respected member of the Rishonim class of sages himself. A person in whom Maimonides placed trust and allowed to translate his book of mitzvahs, which was also written in the Judaized Arabic. So he says, Chazak Michal Chazak, Stronger than anybody. And the next thing he says is, Udvarai nigzar mikol davar. And his word is nigzar. Nigzar mikol davar. So in the Kihat, he translates it as his, his word is more unchangeable. More than other people's or person's words. Ein meishiv dinai. Nobody can send his decision back, return his decision. Bad decision. Send it back to the Senate. So I have a, I have a problem with this translation because his word is more unchangeable means that it's, un, it's changeable, but it's more unchangeable. I mean, because if it's just more unchangeable than any other person's words, other people's words are certainly changeable. So God's is more unchangeable. So it's changeable. That's, I can't accept that. that the, it's, which part of nigzar means unchangeable? 
I went to another contemporary translation because I'm just trying to see what, you know, what's going on here. So in the art school version, they say his word is more final than any other word. It's more final. Which part of nigzer means final? So actually, the literal meaning of nigzer, it would seem, comes from the word gzera, which means decree. And it doesn't mean unchangeable, and it doesn't mean final. Although, and more final is problematic, because more final means his word is final. I mean, president's word is final, the chief justice's word is final, your boss's word is final, and God's word is even more final. Really? It's like that, the point is just, it's just more final? Okay, Rabbeinu B'chayat does say, Nigzar Mikol Dover. So the first question that I asked, and I think it's a fair question to ask, is what, what does this actually mean? What, what is the real translation? And it would seem to me, I would like to humbly suggest that we need to go back to some biblical cross-reference to see what word the author or translator was trying to get at, what, what, was, what was trying to convey. Oftentimes, we've noted that in Hebrew, words mean more than words. A simple word can oftentimes represent an idea, a concept. Sometimes in one word, you capture a sentence. What is the syntax here? What is the context? And the second, uh, I think, obvious question is, you said he's chazak michal chazak. You said he's the most powerful. And then you said his word is unchangeable or final. You said he's most powerful. Isn't that the meaning of powerful? Or would we think that maybe God changes his words? Incidentally, Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to bring two verses, one from the book of Psalms, one from the prophecies of Isaiah. And in both of these verses, he's going to be demonstrating this idea that God does as he pleases. Not the idea that God's words are unchangeable, which incidentally is a big deal in Judaism. I'm often approached by people who ask why we reject Christianity. In fact, this morning on the radio I had a discussion about this. Doesn't it come from Judaism? Is the question that they often will ask. And I'll tell them, look, I, I'm not an expert in Christianity. I can't tell you if it does or doesn't come from Judaism. But what, what does that mean, comes from Judaism? Judaism is godly. We believe it comes from God. So if it came from God, then it's by definition eternal. Because God is unchanging. God doesn't get older, tired, more experienced, hungry, excited. This is the old phenomenon that describes the transient nature of the human condition. Just as we cannot ascribe corporeality to God, chas v'shalom. We also cannot ascribe human characteristics which are as mut 
and ridiculous as corporeality. To say that God doesn't have hands or feet. Heaven forfend, you say he had toenails. But he gets hungry. And he gets into bad moods. And once in a while he needs to be entertained and sometimes he's jealous. Yes, the Torah uses all of those expressions. The Torah talks about eyes and hands and feet. And the Torah talks about jealousy and moods. It's all, all anthropomorphism. Metaphorical. Chas v'sholem. That we should superimpose ourselves over a divine frame and say, okay, now I've created God in my little image. (laughs) That's idolatry. And it's plain stupid. So we are not the creator. But we are created in some way as a reflection in God's image. So there are verses that speak about this very idea that God's word is eternal. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean when you say it comes from Judaism? Judaism is Judaism. We believe that Judaism comes from God. So if it comes from God, it's unchangeable. So why would I accept another iteration or version 1.3? This is not software being written that's changing with the environment or circumstances. But the verses that Rabbeinu Bechaya quotes do not speak to the eternity of God's word. It doesn't address this notion that God's word is more unchangeable. I'm using the word notion specifically because a notion is something which is wrong-headed, which is inaccurate. It's a notion, and it's wrong. God is not more unchangeable. God's word is not more final. So what does this mean? What does it mean? And why is Rabbeinu Bechai repeating himself and seemingly going in circles? God is more powerful, he has more stamina, he doesn't change. So the commentaries kind of start to give us a glimmer of light. And I want to take you through this process of how I came to understand what's being conveyed here. The first thing I notice is that the Pas Lechem says, when he says, Chazak Mikol Chazak, he says, and I'm quoting, Chazak b'yicholtei. This is not what we call brute force. This is power, potential power. Power in his potential. That means every, God has the potential for everything. So we're not talking about, oh, God is stronger than a storm. He's more powerful than a tornado. Okay. (laughs) Like, is that it? So he says, we're talking about Yechelis. Not brute strength. The potential of all strength. There is no potential quite like the Creator. Otherwise, it would be God. Which brings us to this, the next words, Vidvarai, Nigzar Mikoldavar. The Menoyach Halavavis says, Dvarai Nigzar. He says, Devar Gezerato Yoter Chazak. His word or decree. 
a decree doesn't take into account what others say or like. It's a decree. Kings decree things. Absolute masters decree. So God's decree is Yoyser Chazak Va'imid Mikoldava. It is more powerful, more eternal than any other thing. Only God's decree? <laughs> so if the Torah is God's decree, it's eternal. Or if it's not God's decree, then it's not eternal. Incidentally, there are parts of the Torah that speak to us in a cogent or rational way. Those mitzvahs are generally referred to as mishpatim, as ordinances or things that are somewhat rational. Don't murder, don't steal, don't rape, don't lie. These aren't what we would call a, a divine decree. It doesn't require a leap of faith to accept that as moral or decent or good. The vast majority of the world's population would be very comfortable saying, yes, that's correct, accurate. Some of the mitzvahs are like that. Honoring your parents, is that a, is that a decree? Your parents were the vehicles through whom God chose to bring you into this world and give you life if you're a person of faith. And even if you're not a person of faith, your parents, for the most vast majority, for the most part, most people, your parents are the ones who worried about you through your nine months of gestation, had sleepless nights when you arrived, gave everything they could to provide you with a childhood and the things you need. You only have to be a decent human being, have a shred of appreciation to respect them and to treat them with dignity. In fact, the Sefer Achinuch, the book of Torah education, presumably authored by the great Rabbi Aaron Halevi, once again a Rishon in the Middle Ages, he says that's like the, the rhyme and reason attached to this mitzvah. It's not a decree. So do we think that respecting parents is going to go out of style? It kind of has, but not for us. Because we, Torah Jews, do not look to the flavor of the day for inspiration. We aren't leaning on what, what's popular now and what could be debunked tomorrow. We believe in the eternity of Torah, but it's not a decree. There are mitzvahs which are called edut, they're testimonial mitzvahs. We left the land of Egypt and the dough never got to rise. That's the haste in which we left. That's an easy way to be able to say we left in under 18 minutes. Because if you would have waited, if it would have taken more time, the bread would have risen. Everybody's got to eat bread. Bread is part of the human experience, or at least it was until Dr. Atkins came along. So everybody was eating bread. How would you tell people? They left very quickly in a way that everybody could understand and relate to. The time it took bread to rise. Once upon a time, bread didn't grow on a shelf in a bakery or in a supermarket. Bread was something everybody made. That's what the Abarbanel says. Maimonides talks about this and Moher Nebuchim in his Guide to the Perplexed. 
In other words, it's not irrational. It's not a decree. And yet I can tell you right now, matzah will not go out of style. There will always be Torah Jews who are paying lots of money, sometimes that they don't have, in order to eat matzah because it's Hashem's mitzvah, it's Hashem's instructions. It's not a, it's not a decree. What, what does it mean when we say, oh, Dvar Gzerato is Yoter Chazak. His decree is more powerful. The Omed Mikol Dover, it stands more so than, than any other word. So the Menorah Chalavavas adds something interesting. I think he himself knows that the words that he penned were inadequate. They don't, they don't really answer the question. So he does something unusual. He throws in a Yiddish word. That was the spoken language for many of these Torah sages. They wrote in Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew or Mishnah Hebrew, but they communicated in Yiddish. And, and Yiddish was a language that their readers would sometimes understand better. He says, Bilshen Ashkenaz, literally translates in a Germanic tongue, but it's really, he refers to Yiddish. He says, Bashert. Bashert means ordained. In other words, according to Manoy Chalvavis, when Rabbeinu Bachaya says, nigzar the things that God ordains are more so than anything else that's ordained. You know, there are things that are ordained to be, assumed to be. We have guarantees. We know this is the way it's going to be. Until it isn't. Because despite the fact that there are so many things in our world that are ordained to be so, ultimately, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu ordains is the way things will happen. I don't have to give you examples because you can think of better examples yourself. Whether you're 20, 40, 60, 80, or 100 years old, you need to simply look into the toolbox of your life's experiences to find examples of things that were ordained, certain to be, until they weren't. If this whole COVID debacle has taught us anything, it's taught us that just because we have plans or things are ordained to be. It means nothing. As my elder colleague, Rabbi Moshe Feller, likes to say, how many people had plans on the morning of 9-11? And they forgot to say two little words. Be'ezrat Hashem. I'll be there. With God's help. In the South, I'm talking about the American South, they have this expression, if the creek don't rise, the creek don't rise refers to the creek. And sometimes the creek could rise and it's not really predictable. And if them creek is going to rise, it ain't going to happen. So if the creek don't rise is like a fancy way of saying, Bizrat Hashem. It's like saying uh, coincidence, an 11-letter name for God. So the Menech Lavavis is giving us a glimmer here. He says, Dvarin Nigzar Mikaldava refers to Bashert. 
or the things that were meant to be. Come with me on this journey. Let's, let us together try to open, to unfurl, and understand what's packed into this word nigzer. From the Menech HaLavavis, we'll take a look at the Marpel and Nefesh. It says something very similar. But the Menech HaLavavis, really, he throws some light when he says, Bashert, meant to be. It's meant to be. So, no matter what any person says or does, nobody can prevent what Hashem wants to happen. If Hashem's will is such and such, and that's the way it's going to be. There's a beautiful story told in the time, I believe, of the Abarbanel, who was telling the king that he was a minister of finance, a very powerful man, he was patched in, and the king had tremendous respect to him. And he said that we believe that matches are made in heaven. Hashem ordains who marries who. In fact, the Talmud tells us that at the time when an Hashem, not even the body, not even the first moment of conception, but before the, 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 the weeks before the conception, when the neshama is being selected, primed, and chosen, there's a heavenly voice that rings out and talks about what's ordained. Ben ploni, lebas ploni. There's going to be such a, a, a man, a boy, a male being, but it's going to be such and such a woman, and this is who they will marry. And interestingly, the word that Menachal Vavas used for Hashem's gzeira, Hashem's Decree is bashert. What do we call marrying our predestined soulmate? You must have heard this. In, in most Jewish circles, it's known as my bashert. It's meant to be. You don't always marry the girl next door, right? In Hashem's infinite wisdom, He finds ways of bringing people together. Could never have imagined it. How would you know? One son marries a girl who was born and raised in Berlin. Another son marries a girl who was born and raised in Moscow. And my daughter marries a boy who was raised in Puerto Rico. Okay, we're all shluchim families. It's, uh, it's not so unpredictable. But the truth is that in all of my life's experiences, for the most part, the marriages I officiate were not necessarily the girl next door or even in the city next door. Hashem has his ways of ordaining things. The king says, ah, fiddlesticks. That's, that's a bunch of baloney, he says. I can, I can ordain a, a marriage. And he has a nephew. A nephew who is very eligible. Nephew of the, the king of Portugal. Portugal used to be <laughs> a very important country once upon a time. Uh, look, don't look at Portugal. Look at Brazil, where they speak Portuguese, one of the largest countries in in South America. That was a colony of Portugal. Portugal was neck and neck with England and Spain. So the king himself heads out into the marketplace, and he finds an extremely attractive young lady selling apples. I mean, she has a chance of marrying uh, a crown prince of sorts. Like, like, like you and I have a chance of moving to the moon tomorrow. And the king pulls out a piece of royal stationery and he writes, 
I command you to marry the bearer of this letter today. And it's signed by the king. And he goes over to this extremely beautiful young lady who's a peasant. She's selling apples. He says, that's good enough for my nephew. She's attractive enough. And he hands her, and he says, he gives her a significant amount of money. And he says, I'm paying you in advance. I need you to deliver this letter to such and such a person at such and such an address immediately. And it's a large amount of money. And this young lady is totally shocked. And she's like, okay, sure. The king turns around and leaves and he chuckles to himself. He says, ha ha, ordained. Orda God ordains. The king ordains. I just made a match. Not in heaven, but right here on earth. It's a long story. But in the end, it turns out that the king discovered that his nephew had married a woman who was in her late 70s. What happened? A crazy story with a royal ball and somebody stole something and everybody's pockets had to be searched and his nephew refused to be searched and later on they did find the stolen item. The king says, why'd you embarrass me? Why would you let your pockets? He says, because I have cake stuffed in my pockets. He says, cake stuffed in your pockets? What in heaven? And the boy looks at his uncle and he says, your royal highness, you forced me to marry a woman with no teeth. I have no choice. I have to put, I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I lock her up in my house. I, I bring home cake. She says, you got all these balls. Bring them some soft cake for me to eat. King says, what? So what happened? As soon as the king left, this girl was selling apples, as the story goes. And she's packing up her wares and heading off. And this older woman who's with her, she says, don't, don't, don't leave now. Our competitor is about, if you leave, he pulls into his, his push cart here or his, or his blanket goes out. Don't leave. I'm pleading with you. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Don't leave an empty space. She says, but I just got paid money. She says, so I'll deliver the letter. You stay right here. I'll deliver the letter. I'll be back in five minutes. <laughs> so when the king finally figured out what had happened, he told Rabbeinu, Yitzchak of Abernal, he says, okay, matches are indeed, so to speak, made in heaven. So Hashem's bashert situation is what we're talking about here. So God's not just powerful. He should have big muscles. He has a gale force of, he can blow wind or produce the largest bolt of electricity. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how God ordains things to be. Let's take a look in the Tevalovan. The Let's see what he says here. He says, Nigzer be called over. What does this mean? What does it mean? Kilomar, in other words. Gezerato kodemet lachala gezerot. Whatever programming commands, if you will, are, so to speak, written. There is a primordial command that's written before it all. The decree of all decrees. All decrees or changes that we see, it all begins with God's, so to speak, decree, command or order. 
Whatever it is that's happening in the world that seems to be random or haphazard to you, everything is being ordained by God. In other words, what we are being introduced to is not the, a Jewish belief that there are many mighty forces and God can best them all. That sounds like Greek mythology or the Romanized version of it. What we're hearing is that everything is by the hand or decree word of God. Everything. All the things that seem to be happening, all these changes, everything is ordained by God. He's not stronger with big muscles. Hashem is the force of all forces. He's the architect, the innovator, and the continuously, continuous source of everything. Dvare nigza mikoldavar means everything ultimately hails back to God's decree, to God's ordination. The Neder Bakredish puts it this way. He says, Rabbeinu Bachaya begins by saying, Habodi is Baruch Chazak. Powerful. He says, Chazak Mikol Chazak. A greater power than any power. And then he says, the word Chazak has to be understood in duplicate. It speaks to both parts of the sentence. The first opening part of the sentence and the second part of the sentence. Harishan he says, it's as if it would have said Chazak twice here. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar didn't use extra words. He was sparing in his words. He wrote Chazak, and it's as if there's a semicolon that follows, and two things that kind of follow up. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Omnipotent above all potency. Mikol Chazak, omnipotent in that Dvaroi Nigzar Mikol Davar. His word is the source of all words, of all things. His command is the source of all commands. His ordination is the source of all that is ordained. And he says, if you want to understand the use of the word Nigzar, you would do well to take a look in the book of Job, Eov Chavbez, the 22nd chapter, in verse 28. So what does it say in Job? It says, V'sigzar Omer V'yakum Lach. Speaking about God. He decrees a saying. He's, he says, so to speak, a decree. And that's, that's what happens. Incidentally, I went to two contemporary translations just to see how they would translate that word, vatigzer. So, I guess 
there isn't any cohesive nature in, in what Artscope publishes. It depends who translated it. all. There's, because here they translate the word Vatigzer as Vatigzer Omer as utter a decree. He utters a decree. Over here they wrote, um, his word is more final. And because whoever translated the Tanakh is not the one who translated the Sharbatachan. Okay. In the Steinzeltz edition, he uses the English word decide. Tigzer Omer means a decision. God decides. So on a technical level, utter a decree sounds more accurate, but if you think about it, this is actually a decision. God decides, and it happens. Whatever God decides. And, I mean, I, I think Rabbi Evan Yisrael is right. The Steinzel's edition is, is more accurate because Mitzudah's David actually uses the word decision. Ratzelaymer, he says, what is mevatigzer? Kishetachlet bedaitcha, when you resolve in your mind. That's called decide in English. La says dovarma, to do something. Oz, hamokimikayimuch. You decide, God will make it happen. You decide, God will make it happen. So it's not God's decision, but the point is, it's a decision that's made. I don't think it's so much as a decree. There's a very interesting statement which is found in Masechet Ta'anit on Dafchal Gimel Amr Aleph. There's a, this is a tractate that talks about what we do when there's no rain in the land of Israel. <laughs> that might sound strange to some of you. What do you do when there's no rain in the land of Israel? You make rain. Oh, really? How do you make rain? What should Torah Jews do when there's no rain in their homeland? You see, the land of Israel is markedly different than the land of Egypt, where we were enslaved and from which we were redeemed. In antiquity, whenever there was a famine in the Middle East, there was one country that it would invariably prosper, and that country was Egypt. It's not actually Middle East, it's North Africa, but it's right there at the Middle East. And what's so unique about Egypt is the string of waterways known as the Nile Delta. And the Nile Delta created what we refer to as the Fertile Crescent. So there was... Uh, there was fertility, so to speak, in the ground. The ground was fertile. Why was the ground fertile? <laughs> the ground was fertile because it was being irrigated. Now, it is true in the story of Joseph, even Egypt suffered economic collapse. Even they had famine, even. But not after, not before, pardon me, all of the Middle East came to purchase provisions. So Israel is a country with almost no river the largest body of water the country contains is called the sea salt. The, pardon me, the salt sea, Yam HaMelech. In English, they call it the Dead Sea. It's very interesting. In Hebrew, it's not dead, it's dead. Are you kidding? There was <laughs> people who made a living out of the sea salt, not a deading. 
that just people in Jordan figured out, hey, look at that, these Ahava products, we can replicate them because we're also bordering this uh, Yama Melech. For us, for Yidin, for Am Yisrael, nothing's dead about Israel. Even this, the Yam HaMelech is alive. It has a different a source of, of different things. Okay, the Yam HaMelech doesn't help you grow anything. In fact, nothing grows there. It used to be a very fertile place until Hashem flipped the tectonic plates upon which that particular beautiful little paradise once sat. And it's been windswept desert ever since. Okay, that doesn't help. The Jordan River... It's not much of a river. Perhaps it was more of a river, but it's certainly not much of a river. And the Kinneret, which is a freshwater lake, doesn't really compare to the Great Lakes that the United States and Canada share, but it's still a freshwater lake. But if there's no rain, the Kinneret begins to sink precipitously. And the nature of Israel is that it has tremendous water challenges. One of the first things the modern state of Israel did was to create a waterways so the people would have a water system because without water, there's no life. That was the great contribution of the former prime minister, Levi Eshkol. He built the waterways or the water system, infrastructure. So what do Jews do when it doesn't rain? We pray. Hoy, do we pray? What, just just pray? No, no, no. There's a system. There's an order. And we fast. And commensurately, the tractate is called Tanit. Tanit means to fast. So there's a series of fasts that are ordained. First set of fasts, second set of fasts, third set of fasts. Who fasts first? Pious people fast. In the end, everybody's fasting. Because really, our lives are at stake. And no rain means drought. And drought means no harvest. And that spells doom and death. So it's pretty serious. And there's halachas about this. And the Gemara there, Masechet Tainis, tells us an incredible story about a man who's known as Choni the Circle Maker. Choni Hamagel. So what do he do for a living to get a name like Circle Maker? Well, it's not what he did for a living. It was a, 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 a powerful event that took place. And the, the, the event that took place was that Choni prayed to Hashem and the people desperately needed rain. And Choni drew a circle. And he said to God, I'm not leaving this circle until it rains. Simple as that. And it rained. I'm giving you the Coles notes, but that's the story. So the Gemara tells us the proverbial children of the Chamber of Hewn Stone, that's a euphemism for the Sanhedrin, the ecclesiastical high court of the Jewish people, the seat of Torah learning. And they sent a message to Choni HaMagal, and they paraphrased this verse. They said, Vatigzar Omer, and you decreed, Vayokom, and God fulfilled. Gozarta ata, gozarta milmata, you made a decree below. God fulfills your word on high. And this falls into the, the frame of a famous teaching of our sages, Tzadik gozer, Bahakadish Baruch Mekayim. A tzadik decrees, God fulfills. 
Maybe that's where uh, the article version took the translation utter a decree. Maybe it took it from a sechatanit. But the Mitsudas, the Mitsudas is the the place really we, we should look for understanding of scriptural words, and he renders it kishatachlet. You make a decision. Here we went all over the place, huh? From betochen, trust in Hashem, Hashem all powerful. Now we're talking about sechatanit. All of Torah, all of Torah is like. All rivers lead to the sea. It's all, it's all interconnected. Torah is like a body. It's, it's a unified body. And it's the same life-elixing bloodstream that flows through all the veins, all the arteries, all the capillaries. And you have to just know how to find what you're looking for because they can be sometimes impoverished in one place, but they're rich elsewhere, when you look at, when you have a, a picture of all of Torah, you, you can get clarity. So anyway, the Toiv Halavonen says that if you want to understand what Rabbeinu B'chayim meant here, you need to look, pardon me, the Nedeb HaKadosh says, you need to look into the book of Job, Omer. So it's like, if God decides, that's the way it's going to be. God decides. That's what this is. Dvar his decision is above all decisions. So it's not about brute force. There's, there's something about God deciding the way things are, God ordaining the way things are. And this really brings us now to the words of the Paslecha. And then we're going to go into the verses that are used by Rabbeinu Bachaya to make his point. And when we do that, everything is going to come together. And it's going to be like an electromagnet that goes live, like, and suddenly everything is going to snap into place. And you're going to go, wow, so that's what Rabbeinu Bechaya was saying. Of course, there is no other in whom we should place our trust. All right, so come along with me. Let's, let's continue to look into the words of these wise luminaries. V'dvarin nigzar. So the Paslechem says, Dvare is barach, God's words, dahainu, that is to say, havtachato, God's assurance, God's promise. It's chatuch v'tzamut bebal yeshuna. It's separated from everything else. It's not influenced by anything else. If God decided that's the way it's going to be. But what about all these challenges that seem to lie in the way of what God promised? It's irrelevant. What seems to be a challenge, what seems to be an obstacle, is meaningless. Why? You, you have a, a president, a prime minister, a magistrate, a rich person, they decree, they make this decision, and uh, they meant to carry things out, but it didn't work that way. Yeah, he says, because God is not part of that system. He's not in the system. He's not stronger. His word is not more unchangeable. It's not more final. God's word is not in the running of everybody else's words. God is 
radically different. God's promise is different. It's, it's not in the same Richter scale. It's not in the same dimension. It doesn't have to take anything else into account. Listen to what he says. He says, where did I get that from? How does, how does, that, uh, how does that get conveyed with the words nigzer mikoldover? Paslechem says, direct your attention to a statement which is made in the book of Leviticus. He says, nigzar, the word nigzar, which we typically would call a decree or resolution, he said the word actually at its origin means cut off. By the way, ligzor means to cut off. He says nechtach. And we see this not as something which is cut, but something which is described as radically different, not in circulation. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 16, verse 22, over there, the Torah is describing what seems to us to be a very strange rite, temple rite, the rite of the scapegoat. It's thrown over a cliff. And it happens in Eretz Gzera. What is Eretz Gzera? A land of decree or resolution? No. The Metagamin and Unculus renders Eretz Gzera as Ara Chatucha. A land cut off. That's how he renders it. Venosa Hasoyer, Torah says, Leviticus 20, uh, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 22, he carries the he-goat with all the sins of Israel placed upon it, El Eretz Gezerah, into a land of Gezerah. What does this mean? So he says, Eretz Gezerah is translated as Ara de la Yosva, a land that is not settled. Or, if you look in the other Targumim, it's rendered as a Midbara, as a desert, or as a land which is cut off. A land cut off. What does that mean, a land cut off? Well, obviously it's a desert. That's what it was. It was the Judean desert. It's a land that's cut off from developmental possibilities. You see, uh, a regular piece of land in, in Israel was typically a land that would get developed. Developed didn't mean you built condos. It mean, meant you, you would plant, you would, you would grow something from the land. But this is a land which is taken out of circulation. Let me share with you the commentary of Chizkuni. He says, Eretz Gezerah, Mishune, odd, strange, different, set apart. It's different, Mishar Aratzis, from other lands. He says an example of this would be a verse in the prophecies of Yeshayahu Hanavi in the 53rd chapter where he says, Nigzar me'eretz ha'chaim, removed from the land of life. Which means 
a mokim mufrash umuvdomi adam. It's a place that's out of circulation, removed from human habitat. And then the Chizkuni says something very interesting. We don't know the source for this. In modern commentaries on the Chizkuni note that we have no medrash that indicates this. We, we would assume that if Chizkuni said that, he probably had a source or heard it from one of his teachers, but we don't know where it's from. He says, what's the reason for this? Im yisa If they would take this he-goat upon whom was placed, who absorbed all the sins of Israel, Shuv le'tatzmiach. Wherever the higa will be thrown, that land would never again produce any vegetation. It's, for lack of better terminology, it's the equivalent of nuclear fallout. But the kind of nuclear fallout from which you can't recover. Because somehow, we don't understand this. This is beyond our human ability to grasp or even to envision. But all the sins of Israel were somehow placed by the Kohen Gadol representing the entire nation upon this sheep. In fact, it says that the person, the Kohen that carried the sheep is called Ishiti. Some of the commentaries say that the man of the hour was a person who was already terminal because carrying this goat with all the sins had um, like, a, like a radioactive effect. And, and the person who carried the goat would get sick and die as well. So the man of the hour is the man whose hour had come. And that would be his final privilege, his final hurrah, his good deed, where he would bring about atonement for the Jewish people. He's going to die anyway. Because after you absorbed the negative energy, the sins of a whole nation, that were condensed into this poor little goat, you were finished. It says that the goat was carried because the goat became so sick physically sick from receiving all of this negative or dark energy that it, it at some point could, couldn't walk anymore. Pretty spooky stuff. The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, he explains, Eretz Chareva, a land that is desolate. She'em boshum a land with nothing grows. We're describing a desert, of course a howling, empty wilderness. It means it's gzura v'nichrata mikoltov. It's cut off, ripped out of circulation from all, there's nothing good there. It's empty, barren. That was this portion of the Judean desert. That's where the goat will go. Okay, so Paslechem says that's the meaning of taken out of circulation. What does that mean? What does it mean God's word is desolate? God's word is howling, empty? Of course not. It's a metaphor. If you want to describe a, a plot of land that's radically different from all other, earth, soil can be planted. But this ground can't ever be planted. It's taken out of circulation. The point, says Paslechem, is God's word is taken out of. It's cut out of, so to speak, from any other word. It's not another word. 
I say, you say, God says. No, God says that's what is. There is nothing if God didn't say it, so to speak. There is nothing if it isn't ordained. There is nothing if it isn't bashert. In other words, from a faith perspective, it is impossible for anything in the world to happen if God didn't want it to happen. Does that mean that people don't have freedom to choose? Oh, of course you do. You had freedom to choose and you will be held culpable for every choice you made. Adam mu'ad la'ilam, the Gemara says, a person never has excuses. For an animal, you can make excuses, not for a person. I was tired, I was angry, I was drunk, I was frustrated, I was high. You're responsible, always. However, despite the fact that you are ever responsible for everything that you do, because you made the decision to do it, that which you engendered, the impact that you made, could not have happened if God didn't want it to happen. And although it sounds somewhat contradictory because, hey, if I have the freedom to choose, if it was going to happen anyway, why am I responsible? Maimonides talks about this, actually, when he asks, why is the Pharaoh held culpable? Why were the Egyptians punished for their enslaving of the Jewish people? Somebody had to do it. There was a decree. Indeed, says Maimonides, who asked you to? Whatever would have to happen would have to happen. But you chose to be the perpetrator. And as such, you will be held 1,000% responsible. But on a, on a theoretical level, and this is very hard for us to envision, it's very hard for human beings to wrap their minds around this, everything that happens, that means any darkness that's engendered through any particular sin was a darkness or a descent that was ordained, it's only that your choice to do it was your choice, and you'll be held responsible for that. Nothing in this world happens if it doesn't first have a decree, so to speak, from on high. So the, the doctor who's guilty of malpractice is guilty. And the choices, the bad choices he made, or the lack of attention or neglect that caused the patient to die is something that the neglectful individual will be held accountable for by God. But that person didn't kill your relative, even if they did. In the end, it was ordained to be so. I met a distant relative of mine, one of my son's engagement parties, and he's younger than me. And his beard is white. And I said to him, I said to him, uh, you really aged quickly. You're at least uh, seven, eight years younger than me. He's named after a common great-grandfather of ours. But I remember that great-grandfather. I was seven years old when he died. And I said, if you're named after him, you have to be at least seven, eight years younger than me. Like, how'd you get a white beard? And he tells me the following little story. He says he has a really good friend. And he and his friend went into a particular investment. And his friend came to him and said, you know what? This is a terrible investment. We're going to lose our money. Let's get out of this deal. Let's get out of this deal. It's, 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 you know, it's going to go south. And his friend convinced him to get out of the deal. And then he went and bought the very stocks he sold. And a few weeks later, it went through the roof. It was pretty clear to him that his friend set him up. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was so hurt. He was so deeply offended 
that a friend would do something like this to him. And he was so angry that he lost the possibility he could have retired. He would be set for life, so to speak. And he, was, he said, I turned white. I literally, my beard turned white over the angst. And he says, my Rav called me over. And he says, I see, like you're not yourself. What's going on? And I said, I told him the story. And, and this uh, distant relative is not a, it's not a Lubavitcher. It's not a Chassid. But he's a person who goes to the Rebbe's Eichel often, and he started to learn Tanya. He's, he's, he's drawn to Chassidus. So his Rav said to him, don't you learn Tanya? Aren't you drawn to Chassidus? And he said, yeah, I am. He says, don't you know that the Alter Rebbe describes in Tanya how nothing can happen if it's not the will of Hashem? Forget what he did. This person is a horrible individual. He will be responsible. But if you were supposed to make that money, you would have made it. And if you were supposed to lose the money, then you were supposed to lose the money. And he says, I thought to myself, I said, he's right. He's right. And I, I ruminated on his words, he said, until they resonated with me. And he said, like, I stopped going white. So it's like a streak of white. I said, that's what I got. It's a pretty crazy story. But he's right. He's right. The Alter Rebbe says, Kol ki ilu The Gemara says that. The Gemara says, if you lose your temper, if you fly into a rage, it's like worshipping an idol. That's a, a powerful statement to me. People get angry all the time. You want to say, use a, a frame to describe it as being inappropriate, bad. Okay, why'd you have to go to idolatry? Like a rebellion against God? Because I got angry? So the Alter Rebbe explains the words of our sages. He says, what do you mean you're angry? You're angry, how dare that person do this to me? You're angry, how could this happen to me? It's a lack of faith. Faith means that you know that everything comes from Hashem Yisbarach. So if God didn't ordain it, it couldn't happen. That person crashed into me. I'm so angry at him. Look, he was busy texting. He'll answer to God and he might get himself a big ticket or even end up in jail. But the reality is that whatever was supposed to happen was supposed to happen to you anyway as the words of our sages go. Al-Hanizak Nigzar. Al-Hanizak Nigzar. On the one who suffered the damage it was decreed or ordained. Nigzar. What does he mean decreed? Right? There's something bad. God made a decree against me? No. The software is written, so to speak. The program's in place. God is the ultimate architect and endless omnipotent controller. Nothing happens in the world without the will of God. We're not talking power. We're not talking might, strength, stamina. We're talking omnipotence. We're talking the source of all power, strength, and stamina. Do you understand what Abin Abachaya is saying now? He's not speaking to a nursery school child and says, oh, Trust God. He's chazak mikal chazak. He, he's stronger than you. He's even stronger than your uncle. This is not a, a game. This is not silly words. Chazak mikal chazak means that the might of God is, more, is mightier, more powerful than any power. It's not in the running. God is not on the Richter scale of strength. You can't measure God against an earthquake or a tornado. 
All of this is simply within the purview of God's will. It's nigzer. God is in a different, it's different, it's not, it's not part of this. And you wanted to trust a person. <laughs> you wanted to put your trust in a storm. You wanted to put your trust in a prediction, a promise, the way nature ordains it to be. Statistics, experiences, it's meaningless. Everything's in the hands of Hashem. So Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is arguing. The very notion of placing your trust in anything other than God is absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. And yet, every day of our lives, we're putting our trust in he, she, we, not God. That makes no sense. For, for trust, you need to know that the provider has omnipotence. Nothing can stop the will of your provider. Well, if you're putting your trust in Hashem, that's about right. It's common sense. It's logical. But it's not pedestrian. It's actually profound. And it's all hinted at in that word nigzer. This was how we got here, right? So from, from Eov, we moved to Leviticus, from a desert, from, from somebody's decision, from a rainmaker, we move into a Yom Kippur right, and things start to become clear to us. And now we can go to the verses. Now, Rabbeinu B'chai, how do we know all this? How do we know this? Nobody can, so to speak, overcome, return, reverse God's decisions. If God decides that's the way it's going to be. How do we know this? We know this because it was already said, told to us by the prophets. David HaMelech says in the book of Tilim, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever God wants, He does. Really? What was so profound about that? So the Ibn Ezra says, look at the verses before and after. We speak here about heaven, about earth about raging waterways. It's all being controlled by God. What's the next verse? He raises up clouds. From one edge of the earth. He fills these storms with lightning. What is he getting at over here? So the Radak says God, not the angels not the spiritual forces. And perhaps that's why we need the next verse. The next verse is the Omar, and it's written, Isaiah 55, verse 11, Yeshayahu Novi says, So will be the words that issue forth from my mouth, obviously in anthropomorphism. My words do not come back empty, God says. I will do as I please. It's always the way it is going to be. What does this mean? What does this mean? Rashi says, This is to let you know through the prophets. If God said so, it shall be. Radak says on a very simple level, people say, Mashiach, Mashiach ever coming. It's thousands of years. Mashiach, it's never coming, Mashiach. 
I promised you, I assured you, I will take you out of exile. If God said so, it will be. Whatever God said will be. How could that happen? Whatever Hashem says will be. And here, my dear friends, something absolutely stunning unfolds. The Toiv Halavanan goes to town on these verses and it is mind-boggling what he's about to say. He says, if you want to appreciate what, Rada, what, the, what Rabbeinu B'chaya meant with these verses, take a look in the verse prior in Yeshayo. It says there in verse 10, As precipitation, rain or snow comes from heaven. And I won't stop. To life. Slake the land of its thirst, so to speak. The land will give birth. The land will nurture and it will blossom forth. I am the one who gives produce, who gives harvest, who brings bread, sustenance. What's going on here? And it's so fascinating to me because in the book of Tehillim, the commentary spoke about, they emphasized, it's about the heavens, the earth, the rain, the seas. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. The Tevalavanan says, what does he mean when he speaks about Kashayyeded Hashelag Vageshem? Mikra Shalafanov. What about the verse before that? Kigovu Shamayim Me'aratz, as the heavens are proverbially distant from the ground. King Govu, so my ways are distant from your ways. Machshavaisaimi, Machshavaisechem, my thoughts from your thoughts. What does this mean? God is smarter. God thinks more intuitively. He has better insight. It means that the way we think of thought is impossible to superimpose over God because the way our mind works, our mind discovers things, learns of things, analyzes things, comes to a decision. All of that is within the framework of a past, present, and a future. But when we speak about God's mind, is it possible for God to learn of things? Is it possible for God to analyze and come to an understanding and awareness? Could God change because, oh, now I know. How could that be? That's beyond the purview of God, that, that makes no sense. That's superimposing human frailty and limitation. What does it even mean, God's thoughts? What does it even mean, God's wisdom? How does God have Bina analysis? How does God have a Deya? We don't know what this means. We just get a speck, a figment, which is just an, a, a metaphor for us. In other words, he means to say, just like Rain, just like snow, is something that is obvious and it's open. You say, well, you know, you know there's going to be things growing. It rained. There's copious precipitation. It was a wet winter, as they say. And you just as you see that mishavim nahares, that rivers are filled with flowing waters because precipitation that came from heaven. And then there is lakes. And there are cisterns that fill and they ultimately flow back into the sea, as we say, all rivers flow to the sea. And then from the sea, the storms whip up. You know, these hurricanes that are endlessly whipping up out of the Caribbean or out of the Pacific or Atlantic. So the, the water evaporates and that whips up into a storm into clouds and then the rain comes back down again. He says, Vehaim built the Seder, it seems to be entire chaos. That's because we can't fathom how all of this is interconnected, interrelated. But you must know 
that God is arranging everything. Everything has a Siba Sedura. Everything has a perfectly choreographed rhyme and reason attached to it. Nothing in the world simply happens. Let me share with you the words of something called the butterfly effect. You may have heard about this. It's called chaos theory. It harps on emphasizes the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a tiny change of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in enormous titanic changes in a later state. So this is like associated with the works of a famous mathematician and a meteorologist whose name was Edward Lorenz. And he noted that the butterfly effect is derived from the metaphorical example of the details of a tornado, meaning the exact time of formation and the precise path that it takes being influenced by minor perturbations, such as a distant butterfly flapping its wings several weeks earlier. Lorenz discovered the effect when he observed runs of his weather model with the initial data that were rounded in seemingly inconsequential manner. He noted that the weather model would fail to reproduce the results of runs with the unrounded initial condition, condition data. Very small change in initial condition has created significantly different outcomes. Like, I'm reading this, and I'm reading the words of the Teva Levon as he explains Rebbeinu Bachaya, and I'm reading the same thing. <laughs> except that this was written centuries before, by a man who was neither a mathematician nor a meteorologist, understanding the profundity and depth of a man who was neither a mathematician, to the best of our knowledge, and certainly not a meteorologist. So this idea that small causes can have large effects in weather was actually recognized by a French mathematician and engineer by the name of Henri Poincaré. There's an American mathematician and philosopher whose name is Norbert Weiner who also contributed to this theory. And uh, basically Lorenz's work is, uh, places the concept of instability of the Earth's atmosphere on a quantitative base. And it's linked to the instability of the, the properties of large classes of dynamic systems, all of which are undergoing nonlinear dynamics and deterministic chaos. So... When you look at all of this, it seems entirely random. And yet, we are taught by the Holy Baal Shem Tev that every single tiny detail of what happens is by divine design. There's an incredible story which is related by the Friedrich Rebbe, uh, the story that the Baal Shem Tev is once walking with his disciples. And they notice a leaf blow off a tree, a solitary single leaf. You know, it's fall. The stems become brittle, and it blows off at that exact moment, and they say, Rebbe, everything is Bahashgacha Pratas, you taught us. Why would a leaf blow off at a particular moment? Think butterfly theory. Think of a butterfly in South Asia flapping his wings, and weeks later, something with several million intermediaries or dominoes, this falls off a tree. And the Bashemta said, go lift up the leaf. And the Talmidim lift up the leaf and underneath they find a worm. And the Baal Shem Tov says that the worm was under the heat of the sun. And it was calling out to its creator in pain. And Hashem arranged that it should be covered by this leaf. 
Now, if you think about this on a mathematical level, it is really within the realm of almost insanity. It is, it's almost insane. It's impossible to fathom this. As one Torah-observant scientist once told me, he says there is not a single question that he has between his science and his faith. Except Tashgach Pratas, he says. The notion that everything is precisely ordained and designed is simply mind-boggling, impossible to fathom. I pose it to you today, my dear friends, that that's exactly what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is speaking about in his third method. That's a very convincing argument that betachen should be placed in Hashem Yisbarach, in the Almighty, in the Almighty alone, because everything comes from Hashem. He's not stronger, more powerful, able to overcome. It's everything, all force, all power, only comes from Hashem. You would put your trust in a person, in a phenomena, in, in the weather, put your trust in Hashem. And when we place our trust in Hashem, which is so logical, makes so much sense but it's so difficult for the eye to see so challenging for the heart and the mind to accept but when you can overcome your own your own inhibitions transcend your own little orbit and ego and you place your trust in Hashem then that in effect brings about the true butterfly effects it brings about that what Hashem ordains happens. And despite the fact that you don't see any path, any, any critical path towards success, you don't see how you could reach that destination or goal. If the Rebbeinu Shalelam says, this is what will be, that's what will be. And your betochen can make that happen. Wow, what an incredible idea. I think it's worth sharing. I hope you will as we continue to learn about the power and the profundity of betochen ba'ashem yezbarach, of placing our absolute total reliance and full trust only in Hashem, this level of faith translated into an emotional attachment and connection, connection with Hashem that gives us certainty and inner tranquility certainly will serve to hasten the coming of Mashiach besides bring us a plethora of good things. May we merit to see that goodness in a real, open, and obvious way, and maybe merit Mir Hashem to finally greet Mashiach Bimheira, will be Amenu Amen. Please share, please like. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, and don't forget to enable notifications. Thanks for joining. Have an amazing day.